Hello, everyone. Robert Walker here, along with Caleb Pierce, and we are Sheep Things Podcast. Our goal with this podcast is to get down to the basics with industry leaders, associations, breeders, owners, vets, suppliers, and anyone else we can find to hear their stories and firsthand experiences. Hopefully, we will ask the right questions to see what makes them successful, how they got started, and what they see for the future of the sheep industry. We hope to have something new weekly that we can share, so stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates as they are published. Stay tuned as we try to share our learning experience with you all as we dive into the sheep industry together. All right, guys, welcome back uh, to Sheep Things Podcast. Uh, today, we're, we're at episode 21 uh, with Dr. Charles Parker uh, from Ohio, and uh, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Parker about his work at the Idaho uh, Sheep Research Center and um, some of the work that he did out there, uh, the development of the polypay breed and some of the early work of the Katahdins and uh, and so you guys need to sit back and enjoy. This is a great history lesson uh, from a well-respected and knowledgeable um, historian of, of sheep in general. So I hope you guys enjoy this as much as we do. Well, Dr. Parker, thank you so much for joining us again. Really appreciate you taking some more time to share with us all your experience. Uh, why don't we go ahead and, and jump right in. Last time we left off, right as you were finishing in Ohio and coming out to the sheep experiment station. Uh, why don't you maybe tell us a little bit about um, when you started the sheep experiment station and, and what made you um, come out all this way out to Idaho? Well, I thought it was, uh, I, I had visited there previously and I was highly impressed with the station. I, I knew some of the employees previously and uh, it just looked like a great opportunity when I was offered the job of director in uh, 1982 and I arrived in uh, in Dubois in March of 1983 and mm -hmm. uh, the sheep station is is a real valuable uh, resource especially to the rain sheep industry as you probably know it started in 1918 uh, they developed the Columbia Targhee polypay breeds uh, they, they worked with the fin sheep crossbreeding and they had selection projects going. They learned that you could increase lamb crop percent on a within breed basis by about 2% per year, which is a sort of a, a benchmark. Yeah. And uh, after I arrived, uh, I, uh, I got familiar with the, the gar sheep guardian dog research and there were about five or six different breeds being researched at that time. And a Dr. Green uh, summarized that uh, uh, early work with a bulletin in 1985. And uh, I noticed uh, USDA a numbers for 2015 said 40% of the sheep raisers in the United States had working, had guardian dogs. So that I think made a big imprint on the uh, success and maintenance, uh, particularly of the range sheep industry. 
Yeah. The uh, the one thing that I got interested in early on was uh, working with a researcher, a range researcher, in Utah State or at uh, Washington State University, and we established a project that we called the Alternative Range Sheep Production System (ARSPS). And uh, what we did was compare the traditional uh, late winter, spring uh, lambing season production system mm-hmm. with a fall lambing season and a production system and followed the lambs all the way through. And uh, we did this because about 54% of the lambs in the U.S. are born in February and March. And uh, they're marketed in the fall at the lowest time, lowest cost of the year. And so we were looking at alternatives that we might offer the, particularly the range sheep producers. And uh, interesting numbers, but uh, I'll not get into too much detail, but in the fall lambing group, uh, the ewes were not supplemented at all. And when we put them on uh, alfalfa, uh, and even some of them had triplet lambs they were nursing, uh, they went through up until weaning time without any supplement at all. And this lowered the nutritional input by about 42% relative to the winter lambing, the typical range conditions. Yeah. But then the lambs were marketed in a different phase, but they were available for market during the late spring or mm-hmm. early spring during the Easter season, which would be the highest time of the year for marketing lambs, particularly at that time. Yeah, so a quick question so that, about that. that, that I beg your pardon? Oh, I was just going to ask a, a quick question. Um, so, you know, kind of being out here in the, you know, pretty close to the sheep experience, experiment station, I've wondered about fall lambing this far north. Um, did you guys see uh, pretty significant reductions in uh, lambing percentages, lambing in fall versus the, the winter lambing, or was it about the same? That, that's, a, that's a very good question. I think uh, the genetics have to be altered, uh, particularly away from the Columbia and Targhee breeds because there's there's a very low lambing percentage from spring breeding and fall lambing. Okay. So did you see and, that? Uh, yeah, the, were but, there any uh, breeds that you had success with then, like like a Dorset or? Um, uh, well, we had we had some fin crosses. Oh, okay. And uh, uh, fin polypay sheep, mm-hmm. and uh, they're the ones that uh, we were used in the in the fall lambing. Gotcha. One of one of the things that that really is a bothersome and still continues to be is that the average lamb lambing rate for mature ewes is about 50% twins. That means that half the ewes have twins and half of them have singles. And how do you nutritionally manage a flock during late pregnancy in that state? And then Considering that particular type of genetics, where 50% have twins, only about 18% of them consistently have twins. And this was a real concern to me, and I visited with the Targhee people in Montana, some of the leaders, and before I left, and we talked together, and about 1986, we were discussing 
introducing fin crossing into into the targi breed as a part of the targi breed but i left before that became active but um that's still a big big question mark that should be addressed that uh, i don't think it is very uh very uh, strongly at least i'm not aware of it but the uh one thing i experienced uh, a lot of the people in the area thought that you'd get bloat and everything and the lambs the ewes would die and we controlled uh, the grazing uh, with electric fencing so after the after the forage was grow, uh, grazed down so low then we moved them into a fresh pasture where the plants were more mature and we had a few ewes that got back into the lower gro growth very just just a handful once and they bloated and died so it's it was very it's uh, very important as to how you manage use grazing lactating use grazing on alfalfa in the fall but alfalfa is a is the queen of the forages and it's a tremendous forage for sheep and utah way back earlier on i found that uh, breeding their uh, particularly the yearling ewes on alfalfa, they got more lambs than they did just traditional forages that they normally bred their sheep on. Something that's probably followed somewhat today, but uh, it was very impressive then. Uh, in, uh, I could go into more details and numbers on, on that, but the thing of it is uh, that we begin to realize with the minority and ethnic markets uh, showing a little bit later on that the so-called uh, non-traditional way of raising sheep was needed to be considered a bit. And uh, Dr. Pope and I, in 1983, we, uh, 75th year of the American Society of Animal Science, uh, was asked to write a story about the sheep industry for the American Society of Animal Science. And one of the things that we mentioned very clearly was where we assessed the genetic resources, we suggested that uh, the woolus be developed, woolus types be developed that are genetically resistant to, imp to imp uh, important diseases and, uh, and foot rot. Uh, for optimal production for certain types of research managements in the future. And that led us then to get more excited about when the meeting was about the Katahdin Hare Sheep Association in March of 1984 there at Dubois in, in Idaho Falls. And it was decided at that time that we should encourage Mrs. Peel to approve of going ahead and establishing the Katahdin breed. And uh, that's how it all came about, the Katahdin breed. So I might jump in and start talking a little bit about that unless you have some questions about the uh, station research. Yeah, so I guess, I, I guess maybe a couple questions for you. Um, just to get an idea of the scale, um, about how many ewes was the station managing 
when you were managing the station? Around 35 to 3,800. Okay. And we had uh, we had some outstanding breeding projects going mm-hmm. at that time, and I I think there's just a fraction of that available now, but I'm not certain of the numbers. Yeah. But uh, some of the some of the range research that's done at that station is tremendously important to the to the range industry in terms yeah. of management. Definitely. And uh, it's it's been a a valuable, valuable resource particularly for the range sheep industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, it provides so much information um, from a genetic level and from, like you said, a range management level. Um, it's very, very helpful. Um, what, was, what was your favorite project that you were involved in at the Sheep Experiment Station? Um, was there one that really stood out to you as, as a particular enjoyment, whether it was genetics or whether it was the range side? Um, what was kind of your, your favorite um, project that you worked on? Well, this, this alternative range sheep production system uh, that we introduced jointly with the help from uh, a range scientist at uh, Washington State University, I got the most out of that. And I put, we, pr- we pretty well organized that. There were other researchers that were already involved with, with projects on and on. We got one new researcher from Cornell that came out. His name was Fitzgerald. He was a reproductive physiologist, and uh, we got him interested in in the male side of reproduction. Mm-hmm. And uh, he continued to do research after I left, and was active as a director at one time in the early '90s before he left. Yeah. So I guess another question for you. Um, so, you know, now we're utilizing estimated breeding values and um, u- utilizing genetic technology. Um, how much of that was available to you back then and how much of the, the work that, that you did, I mean, really helped develop those? Um, was it, did you have access to any, any of those sort of technologies back when you were managing the station or was that kind of all laying the groundwork for that technology? Uh, in 1986, there was interest in uh, looking at this uh, type of research, and uh, it was a national committee. I was on that committee, and so it was established in 1986. And uh, but none of the research there at Du Bois directly affected that. Yeah, gotcha. So yeah, so then you're, so after, you know, or while you were there, you, you really, like you just mentioned, encouraged the development of the Katahdin Association that started out here in Idaho, a, a fact I'm very proud of. Um, maybe walk us through um, kind of why you thought an association was important to start and uh, what, um, you know, what impacts you've seen just from an association level um, that decision has made. Well, as I say, I- when we looked at uh, the, situ- the industry situation as a total, when we compare, when we put this article together there in 1983, it was pretty obvious that there were areas in the United States because of climatic conditions and so on and so forth, really never had a sound cheap breed that was productive. And then the other thing was that 
wool is has been a, a good source of income, but we needed something that was more productive in terms of land crop percentage. And uh, I mentioned that the holy grail of meat sheep production was pounds of quality lamb marketed for you per year. And 85% of that is associated with lamb crop born. And uh, so that was that was pretty important too. And we saw opportunities then to, uh, to create a, a combination of breed crosses, composite, uh, that did not produce wool, that could have effects in various locations of the country. And I, in, uh, I think I, re I read an article once, a fellow had back in 1903, I think it was, talked about the South, and uh, he said that there wasn't any any possibility of successful uh, raising sheep in the South other than in small flocks uh, because of parasites and temperature stress. So this this aroused us, in, uh, at least in my mind, to look seriously at the Katahdin breed because mm -hmm. it had just surfaced as something that could possibly uh, fit in, in a lot of states yeah, particularly the south and southeast of the United States. Yeah. So how did you first hear about Catans then? When, when did they first kind of come on your radar? Because you mentioned in our last episode how you, um, you know, you're involved in early hair sheep research at, at Ohio State. Uh, when did you first learn about the Catan breed and, and first kind of see your the, see those Catans in person for the first time? I think I probably read about it in about 1978 or 9 mm -hmm. and then I was invited to be on a program at Heifer Project International and uh, that's where uh, uh, Laura Cullum at that time and uh, Ed Martzoff were located and they had been uh, uh, getting Katahdin sheep from Theo Farm and exporting those uh, from Heifer Project International. And uh, I think that's where I first about it, heard about it. And I made a trip to Maine in 1980 and visited uh, the uh, Peel flock. Mrs. Peel talked to her. Uh, her husband had died in 1976. And I was impressed with what I saw. They had 700 or so ewes, and that was pretty impressive there. And uh, from there on, I realized that I thought there was a place for hair sheep. And we had developed them, before I went to Dubois, we had developed a composite uh, using the Florida natives for the parasite resistance genetics that I talked about previously, along with the St. Croix resistance. And we put in some uh, Suffolk and uh, Targhee and made a composite. And that composite then, after I left Ohio, was purchased by Effort Project International in 1985. 
and put with the peel uh, katahdins that had been developed. Yeah. So that was the kind of a marriage of two different sources of genetics at that time. What was the uh, size of the, say, the average size of a U uh, up at Maine at, back in that day um, when you went up there and visited the Peel Farm? What, what was, was the typical flock size or uh, frame size, weight, that kind of stuff? Yeah. Well, uh, Mr. Mr. Peel early on, you know, commented that they were small and uh, they didn't have much bustling. Um, and he proceeded before his passing on to uh, cross the uh, St. Croix that he got in developing the Katahdin breed. That, that, those were the St. Croix I was talking about that were small. And he proceeded to cross then and uh, actually introduced he thought the Suffolk, one of the Suffolk crosses was one of the best. So he, en he enlarged them, but they still weren't real large at the time. I'd say they probably used might weigh 115, 120 pounds, and the Rams probably 175 maybe at most. And uh, there's been a lot of change since that. Yeah. And with that change, I mean, and we can probably get into this more later as far as we talk about the future, but with that change, I mean, obviously we've kind of seen almost two different strains or whatever you could call them of Katahdin's, two different lines where you have a little bit more of that medium size and then you have those who are selecting on larger size. Um, have you seen that kind of, um, did you see that a lot of that genetic variability early on? Um, in the, the peel flock where there were maybe some that kind of stood out as larger that maybe had more of that suffix in them and then some that maybe had a more of a percentage of that those uh, St. Croix originated sheep did was there kind of a pretty diverse genetic pool or, or do you think that they were all pretty pretty similar well, I, I think there was a fair amount of variation to work with in the early 80s and then when we put that um contribution that we made in they were a lot larger mm. the ones that composite we had there were 75 years that went into that group that they had at Effa project International, or at uh uh Effa project international in 1985 and yeah. uh i i think that uh, that gave some genetic variability for size mm -hmm. without any question and what, what what were the kind of the sizes on those crosses? Because I mean, you obviously started with some smaller breeds, and and you worked hard breeding in those the Suffolk yeah. and yeah, uh, we used we we used both Targi and Suffolk in that mix, and then we did some selection on that. Not it was only about three or four years of selection, mm -hmm. but uh, they were woolless at the time, and uh, all of them had less than a thousand eggs per gram for um, parasite assessment uh, that were sent to the uh, Heifer Project International. Okay. Yeah, we talked about that, uh, We talked about that? We talked about this in a previous episode, how uh, important the Heifer Project was in the development of the breed. Um, if the right. Heifer Project, you know, wasn't really going on at the time, the Katahdin breed may have never taken off. 
they had a lot to do with it. And then uh, this uh, Ed Martsoff and particularly Laura Callan at that time, Laura Hortmeyer, she was made after the breed was established in 1985 then, she was made the director of the breed association. And she continued in that job for almost, I think maybe 14 or 15 years and did an outstanding job of bringing in new ideas, bringing in uh, interest in the breed and uh, she made a tremendous contribution, and and Ed Martsoff was early early on involved too. But uh, it it took some. I think it was in 19. Got a note here. Uh, Nineteen ninety one. We had a uh, air sheep symposium in St. Croix, and uh, the uh, number of sheep that was indicated uh, in the Katahdin breed at that time, I think she said there were 107 breeders in 1970, in 1991, and they were located in 37 different states. So uh, that's that's where things started 32 different states yeah and 107 breeders and uh there was four uh four flocks in uh, or four uh provinces in canada that also had katahdins but these katahdins were from the law from uh heifer project international were sent some of those were sent out of the country and uh and that that uh, planted some seeds that were later germinated and like in Mexico, for instance, they, by the middle of the 1960s, 1990s, Katahdin uh, was the number one breed in Mexico. Yeah. So why, why do you think that the breed took off so quickly? I mean, that's a pretty um, rapid <laughs> increase in, and uh, population and percentage of, of the sheep population, especially in in the southern United States, um, when when you you know saw those katahdins early on, did you envision that kind of a rapid explosion, or was that even faster than you or anybody predicted? Well, in in, in 1994, they did away with the National Wool Act uh, incentive payments for wool, mm -hmm. and there were a lot of range people, a lot of people that emphasized wool production uh, went out of business. A lot of people in Texas went out of business. By 1995, they stopped the incentive payments all altogether, and there was a there was a tremendous reduction in sheep population. And uh, but it was it was still slow up until probably I'd say I think the first 50 years after Peel had this dream you might say of having a woolless meat sheep it took 50 years to have 50,000 sheep registered and that was in night uh, 2006 mm -hmm. and then after 2006 things were started to happen and, and really took off 
Yeah. So going back a little bit to the association level, um, when you encouraged the, the development of the association, what did you envision uh, for the association to do? What did you envision for the association as far as a future? And uh, was it was it breed promotion? Was it breed development? What were kind of some of the main reasons that you thought an association would have been important? Well, I've always been strong on performance. And uh, there was, as always, there's what I call the purple ribbon people, you know, uh, that emphasize more on size and show types. But I think what really set this off was the adaptability of the breed and the fact that uh, they were woolless and uh, uh, shearing costs were going up and in small flocks, why that was a kind of a added expense and effort. And I think this is kind of what got things going. But uh, the, uh, the leadership that that was put in by Dr. by uh, Laura Fortmeyer was was really important, no question about it. And then Jim Morgan came along in the, uh, about 1998, I believe it was, and Teresa. And uh, but this this wool act of uh, really set the thing off, and. Uh, that kind, of, that kind of got things moving. Yeah, definitely. Well, I can tell you the 1994 wool thing, that was my first experiment with small ruminants. Um, I had a friend oh. talk me into some Angora goats uh, because there's all this <laughs> money in the wool. And so we bought them right. in, in the summer of 94. And by the time we got ready to shear them, the wool was useless. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So my granny made crafts. Particularly the medium wolves. Oh yeah. So my granny uh, made crafts. Yep. And she used the Angora uh wool, the long strands of Angora, uh made really cool Santa Claus beards uh for her father <laughs> time. And so that we did that for for probably a year or two and then we got rid of them things. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that affected a lot of people. The uh, the interesting thing, and I'll get back to some of his other, but while we're on the the growth, I think the the growth of the association really really hit started to hit a peak in the late or in the early uh, first first decade of the of the twenty 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 uh, or the twentieth century, and um, I just looked at some numbers here not too long ago, and in 19 or 2010, there was 4,753 Katahdins registered, and in 2019, there was 9,042 registered, a 92% increase in nine years, and that was really fast-growing period. And uh, I think the highest number registered to date was in. Uh, 2018, and that was over 10,000. But the Dorpers are hanging in there too as a as a 
Wallace breed in the 2019, they had 99,309, which was first for that particular year uh, registered. Yeah, so a question along that note, I mean, you've you've kind of seen both breeds rise to prominence, both the Catans and the Dorpers, um, and, and, you know, being a, a, a Catan breeder, I obviously know your involvement in Catans. Were you involved with Dorpers at all? Um, how have you seen the Dorper breed develop, and um, what what kind of portion of the industry do you think that the Dorpers fit into? Well, the Dorpers came along earlier, I think, uh, primarily through the meat out from uh, uh, the research there in uh, Nebraska, and uh, I wasn't involved with the Dorper breed at all. I hadn't had any association with it. Mm-hmm. But their performance records are very good, and they're they're very productive fertility-wise. They have a high level of twinning uh, rate, so they're 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 popular. And I think uh, confirmation-wise, they probably have fairly decent confirmation. Yeah. But the uh, yeah, I looked at the registrations here. Just brought it up. Through 2019, the total registrations for Katahdins to date are 147,000. So they'll be at 150,000 by including this year when those yeah. numbers are put put forth. I'm sure. Yeah, That's you know, actually, registrations this year are are as steady as the last three years. So uh, we were expecting a big drop off with uh, with the virus and everything, but uh, registrations. And- Transfers are still really strong. Well, that's, I didn't, I hadn't heard about the registration, so I wasn't sure where they were. Yeah, we're probably, I mean, we might more than likely end up, you know, 500, 600 or something lower than last year, maybe. But, uh, you know, considering everything that's it's going on, I think that's a great, uh, great year. Yeah. Well, the Katahdins, they've done one thing that some of the other breeds, of course, didn't follow through on. They jumped into the NSIP fairly early. And uh, NSIP's been around for 33 years, and they, they got into it fairly early on. And they're using those records since the early early part of this, this uh, century. And so that's been that's been an important thing for them. Yeah. So a quick question for you, um, while we're on that topic, you know, you you did a lot of work with range operations, um, and, and and other breeds. You know, primarily a lot of wool sheep um, out here in the range operations. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that we see out here is, you know, with Katahdins, it's a little bit easier for a lot of flocks to implement NSIP because you have, you know, a lot of kind of, you know, more farm flocks. And, and when I say farm flocks, you know, there may be a couple hundred breeding ewes, um, but, you know, they're flocks that, you know, obviously aren't going out in rangeland and, and it's a little easier maybe to collect some of that data. Um, rams are typically right. put in single sire groups. Um, what yeah. are some of the ways that, that range producers, like, like let's just take a you know a standard commercial range producer that's not 
you know, primarily raising them for breeding stock. Um, do you think that there's value in trying to track those records and, and submit the data on their own flocks? Do you think that they can make more progress just buying rams that have EBVs? What are, what are the, like, like what are some practical ways that, that a range producer can incorporate that? Cause it's, it's a little bit of a dilemma in the sense that without the technology, it's hard to, you know, continue on that genetic progress, but at the same time, it's hard to get that genetic progress because if you have, you know, right. a couple of bands, that's, it may that's be a hard good to question. That, and yeah. uh, it's, it's one that hasn't been addressed objectively enough. I don't expect the range people to keep very many records. Uh, they've got large flocks, they're labored, uh, challenges are great. Yeah. But I, one of the early things I learned from the director of the sheep improvement stations back in 1950 when my dad took me to sheep day was 70 to 90% of the genetic, genetic improvement is made through the ram. And that's the key. If these uh, range people would buy rams from those people that do keep purebred sheep and have NSIP information, they could advance their genetics through the offspring from those particular kinds of rams. And that's about the major source of improvement I think that they need to follow. But the yeah. problem is, and I, the problem is this, and I was looking at some numbers here. I think it was, uh, I think it was in the year, yeah, let's see, I'll find the numbers here somewhere. But anyway, in the early part of this decade, uh, they were asked about uh, how important is NSIP records or how important are records? And less than 5% of the people considered it to be important are the operators. Wow. And uh, that that tells you something about education or whatever. But that that's that's been a real, real tough thing to, to work through. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a kind of a tough dilemma, and, and so I guess another question would be, you know, you've seen you know rams that are raised in, in kind of a smaller flock, um, and you know rams that are raised on range rams, and one of the concerns that I've heard is, well, if you take these these rams from you know a flock with maybe, you know, maybe fifty ewes or a hundred ewes um, that are maybe a little more pampered than a, a flock with, you know, a couple thousand ewes, um, how can a a producer kind of make that progress um you know as far as from an industry standpoint do you think that there is a need for like one range producer to to invest in in the ability to select breeding stock and make their primary purpose breeding stock or do you think that the ebvs are objective enough to be able to move from a you know maybe a smaller flock um, with maybe 50 or 100 ewes that, that maybe has lower inputs than you'd see in a standard smaller flock, but kind of a low input flock and, and, and still see that genetic progress be incorporated into a, a low, lower input range operation? Well, I, I personally think I'd, about the only, only way they can really do it 
if if there are range people willing to keep those kinds of records, that's all right. But I don't I don't see many of them doing that, and that's the problem. I think uh, I think the real challenge is buying performance from purebred flocks that uh, are keeping records. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So kind of back to what you were talking about before I, I took us on that little rabbit trail. <laughs> you were talking about how Katahdin's were, were early to incorporate NSIP. Um, and, and last I checked, Katahdin's had one of the highest numbers, or if not the highest number of flocks enrolled in NSIP. Do you think that's been the primary contributor to their success in kind of um, oh, taking up the portion industry? Yeah, definitely. I think there was 40-some flocks involved early on in the parasite studies that were initiated in uh, early uh, 2003, and I think there was 40-some uh, flocks uh, then that were involved. Wow. Yeah, and, and based on the, our podcast that we've had so far and the questions we're getting, I think the interest is increasing. Uh, you know, people understand technology more now and and are seeing it, uh, you know, with social media and, and in some of these sales now that, that are having great success with animals with EBVs versus ones without. And uh, so I, I think, uh, I think it's kind of a, a new, uh, a new hot topic again, you know, a lot of interest. Well, the, uh, the Katahdins have this sale in uh, southern uh, uh, Virginia, I believe it is, and uh, every year now since 1912 or 13. Well, it shouldn't, it's not a Katahdins, it, it's a, a, a parasite testing program, I should say. And uh, a lot of Katahdins are entered in that. And there's a lot of breeders go there to get some of the best genetics they can find because they're, they're tested against several different sources, genetic sources that are represented there. And then they're tested with paras against parasites. There's been, been rams sell as high as $7,000 from that sale. So that's, that's, been, uh, that's been a real success. Yeah, I actually I actually took uh, three rams last year myself, and uh, of course, oh, did you? yeah, this year it was canceled. I've probably been to the last four or five years uh, to their educational day and and um, and watching the sales and and I agree. I think it's one of the best sales in the country uh, for performance yep. animals. You know, I mean, you get to see animals that uh, are in a basically a real live competition. Uh, with other sheep, you know, uh, right there in the same pen, eating the same feed, right. eating the same grass, got the same worms, you know. And um, yeah, I think the the biggest problem uh, they've run into now, though, is they got too many sheep. <laughs> uh, everybody's everybody's wanting to bring them a hundred sheep for the test, and uh, you know, you can only sell so many, and they only have the room for so many. 
So uh, right. it's kind of, it's kind of created a problem. Um, you know, how do you, I mean, there's just, there's just not enough room and not enough facility to handle everybody that wants to participate, you know, good problem to have. Well, it's fine. It's possible that there ought to be an, maybe another performance location established, additional one. Oh yeah, I, I agree. Uh, there's a local college close to me and they have a dorper flock and, uh, he hit me up last year about, uh, you know, hey, I need some ideas on um, research projects. And I'm like, easy, hair sheet, parasite, feed efficiency test right here in middle Tennessee. Um, let's do it, you know. Um, but I don't know that he's got the resources yet <laughs> to pull off. And, and the facility, it's, it's basically been a dairy cow um, farm for a long time and they got into sheep probably four or five years ago so I don't think they're hardly set up for it yet but uh, yeah long-term goal that'd be a great uh, great for me it's in my backyard and I'd love to compete with the Dorper guys <laughs> yeah, yeah the, so. uh, one of the questions that I think you came up with was uh, uh, I, after I retired essentially I did, did consulting starting in the early 2000s, and uh, I was invited to go to several of the Katahdin conferences every year. And uh, one of the things that you mentioned was uh, about the three-legged stool. And in order to kind of bring people thoughts together without offending anyone. Uh, I used, uh, I even take a stool or have, have them furnish one. And uh, I'd sit on the stool and I'd get up and I'd say, well, we're going to talk about three-legged stool. And I'd say, well, the first leg is appearance. And when you're around your sheep and getting ready to select for your replacements, why well, you look at confirmation, you look at soundness, go through that. Second thing is performance. And uh, then that's when I tell them that the holy grail of meat cheap production is the uh, quality of number of lambs produced for you per year. And I said, uh, um, that's where you're going to have to lean on a performance program in order to assess that particular leg of the stool. And then the third one was pedigree. And uh, Using NSIP information opened the door then for the three-legged stool to be uh, somewhat understood indirectly. Then I added the fourth stool, fourth leg to the stool for balance, where you balance your selection so that you've got a sheep that's not extreme in one area or the other. And I think this has been one of the real sad experiences that purebred industry has gone through. They've gone through these extremes. And uh, with performance, you can't, you can overdo size, you can overdo lambing rate if you don't have milk production, you know, you have to keep things balanced. And uh, I think the NSIP numbers uh, do a good job of indicating those animals that are genetically balanced. So that, to me, that should help sell the NSIP program. 
at least for uh, people that want to buy productive rams or people that want to get into the industry to raise sheep. Yeah. You know, the, the hard part of that is, is you take uh, geeks like me and Caleb, and, and you're probably a geek too, is uh, when we go to uh, pick our rams and our ewes to breed in the fall, uh, we, we just sit there and look at the numbers and we're trying to match, you know, the, the perfect ram to the perfect ewe, and we go crazy <laughs> trying to match, you know, come out with the perfect animal. So, yeah, that, that is very tough, and, and it's a lot of fun, but uh, we spend probably more time doing that than we do anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that, was, that's, uh, that was part of the story. You have to sit down at the kitchen table. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I'd yeah. rather be working with objectivity than subjectivity. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that's well, something. The other, the other one was uh, uh, the madams. And yeah. uh, I got to thinking, uh, how can you make your best rams better? And there happen to be more ewes probably out there producing than there are rams. Uh, producing formulating records. And so all the more reason then to find the best use that you have in or, and make, make the best rams to them to, pre, to improve the ram that you now have. So the madams are the key for making genetic progress in a breeding flock. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people just uh, kind of look over that, but that's where the, that's where the best rams come from. And, and, and as far as identifying those best use, um, and, and, you know, continuing to strive for that, um, how does a producer, you know, go about doing that in their own flock? Um, you know, if they have, you know, a, you know, maybe a small number of ewes, um, is there, are there practical ways that they can do that if they, if they don't have NSIP, um, or is NSIP kind of the, I mean, obviously NSIP is the best way to, to determine those high productive ewes, but what are some of the kind of markers of AU that's what you would consider a madame? You mean the the appearance markers um, based on or, appearance? Well, the like the production records, um, not necessarily the actual EBVs themselves, but um, the um, you know, like what are kind of the defining factors that you would say somebody could look for. I mean. Obviously, there's going to be differences in production, you know, ones that have more lambs or have better lambs. Um, is is well, there... I, I, think, yeah. I, think if, I, I think if one assesses their flock and determines what the needs are, uh, that should lead you then to focus on what particular aspect you would select more on. In other words, if you don't think your lamb crop percent is high enough, you got an EPD for that to look at. Uh, if you want uh, growth, there's there's measures of that, rapid growth. So there's you know there's things in that 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 set of information, that set of records that can uh, kind of fix what what you're looking for, or what your desire. Yeah. Definitely. And what I, what I love about that answer is how it really is flock dependent. I mean, some flocks, 
you know, in a, in a grass only system may, might not be able to handle lots of triplets, but, um, you know, flocks that are on a lot of grain, you know, more triplets is going to drive their revenue. So, um, I love that that perspective. Yeah. I got a question. I got a question about, uh, about balance. So you take me and Caleb, we both uh, doing this thing. And so should our objective, um, should, should we have like, you know, three or four different rams and each one of them be really strong in certain areas to match up with ewes that need help in those areas. Are we better off to try to get our ewes uh, uh, to a to a balance point? Or should we take, you know, say 10% of our top indexing and just keep trying to drive the uh, the index score up uh, you know, because that's pounds per you weaned. So, so should we keep trying to drive, um, a, a small amount up for that and then bring our other use to balance? What, what, what would a goal be for that? I, I prefer, I, I would suggest in most flocks, they're probably not too large. Uh, I don't think this having different lines is going to be something that will be very well could could be very well managed. Uh, in other words, if you had a line that's superior in reproduction, another line superior in growth. My my feeling is that we ought to go for genetic balance. And uh, if you if you think you need a little more of one thing or another, why well, then you buy rams that way. But uh, I think we ought to have flocks that are pretty uniform in what we want rather than having variation. That's my thought on that. So if yeah, I had I don't know what a, that addresses you. Yeah, so if I had a, you know, a really super queen you, I mean, my very best you, hands down. Yes. Um, how fast or or feasibility wise would it be uh to take a chance and flush her and and breed her to a top one or two ram um to make some progress you and and you hope you get uh ram lambs or something to you know have a bigger impact um now, what are, what are the criteria that you're going to use on the rams that you would use? Well, there you go. It, it you know, uh, a, a balanced, you know, uh, personally, I like maternal weaning weights, weaning weights, and, um, and, and parasite resistance. Um, that's why the well, index is not. That's, 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 that's the point. That's the point I'm making with my dams. That yeah. you is a madame. Oh, absolutely. She should be the mother of your next set of good rams. Yeah. So you may, you, again, you make the best of the best, but she's better than anything that you've got. So the only way to get rams that are better is to get some sons out of her. Right. Yeah. And that's the part I don't like about the index. You know, people see the index as your uh, scorecard, so to speak. And, and yes. we've seen a lot of high index in animals 
that are really not good in anything, you know. Um, that, that makes it kind of tough marketing-wise, you know, to educate people on why you're doing right. certain things, you know. Yeah, so just... Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, so just to, I guess, to clarify, um, you know, for all our listeners out there and, and for me too, um, so when somebody's going out to pick a ram, um, is it, do you think it's better for them to, to look at, so let's say their flock needs to improve in parasite resistance. Would it be better for them to pick a ram that is very strong in parasite resistance and try to bring their flock up in that? Or would it be better for them to pick a ram that has the EBVs of their ideal U and then just slowly build on that and, and buy several rams that have, you know, that those kind of ideal U EBVs and then over time their flock will will reach that? Or is it better to to use a ram that's super high to try to pull everybody up quickly? I I think if if you had a ram that had uh, the EPDs that you wanted for parasite resistance and at least had average or better in the other traits, that's that's the way to proceed. Of course, the gotcha. ideal thing is to have a ram that's high in reproductive uh, parasite resistance and also good in everything else. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. I'm addressing your question right. Yeah, definitely. That but, uh... I, I wouldn't I wouldn't use an extreme ram and then sacrifice everything else that he may be average or below in. Yeah. I wouldn't do that. I'd rather awesome. I'd rather use a ram that's a little lower in EPDs and on parasite resistance and balance than I would do the other. Yeah. Very good point. Yes, I agree. Wow. Wasn't that a fantastic episode? So exciting to learn and, and interesting to, to learn all the different aspects of his work at the Sheep Experiment Station and probably not, not even all of them, even just a, a little sliver of all the work that he did there. And then to learn about the development of the Catan breed is, is fascinating and interesting to hear about um, the development of one of the major U.S. sheep breeds and his involvement in there. Um, and again, I hope you enjoy this, this last podcast and look forward to the next two podcasts we have coming up with him where we'll dive into some more issues. Um, I know you're not going to regret tuning in and listening, so stay tuned and keep your ears open for the next podcast. Thanks for listening to the Sheep Things Podcast. Stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates. We want your feedback, so you can email us at podcast at sheepthings.com for suggestions or comments. Thank you and see you later.